You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast. I have uh, Donnie Yance. He's the founder, president, chairman, uh, lead, lead clinician at the uh, Maderi Center. The website is medericenter.org. Uh, he's got a lot of background. He's a clinical master herbalist and certified nutritionist, uh, renowned for uh, quite a bit of knowledge and understanding of the healing properties of plants and, and nutrition and how they affect us on, on many levels. Uh, so we'll get into... Uh, more of what Donnie's working on. Donnie, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you have such a uh, diverse background. What, I mean, when was your interest in, I guess, I don't know if I could sum it up all, all in one world, <laughs> word, maybe healing. I mean, what, how would you uh, yeah. categorize your, your path through life? The past yeah, well, I, I kind of always, I've always been a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, I'm a musician, so I, I right away veered off being a young guy. I was I was more influenced by jazz and soul and R&B than I was from, you know, the typical rock music. So and then um, about midway through high school, I got very interested in health and healing. And my cousin sent me an old herb book called Back to Eden, written by Jethro Kloss. And I think more than gaining any any real knowledge of herbology it, it was it really touched my spirit first and foremost in that hey you know we look out the window and there's this incredible pharmacy of great medicine that that our creator left for us and that is in sort of embarking on a relationship with us and every culture since the beginning of time has had an intimate relationship with the plant world both for food and clothing and and medicine and so I, I felt like we were sort of turning our back on, you know, sort of uh, one of the faces or windows into how we understand life in a, you know, very theological, uh, spiritual way. So it first touched me more on that level. I was also pursuing, so I was a musician and also pursuing uh, a life as a Franciscan monk. So I lived in a monastery really? for... Yeah, I lived in a monastery for almost three years. I'm professed as a third order Franciscan, so I'm in I'm in the Franciscan order. Uh, I was a Byzantine rite, so it's Eastern rite. And again, off the beaten path, you know, being being raised Roman Catholic, it's an Eastern Catholic Franciscan monastery that I was professed in and lived in. 
And then I, I got a recalling um, eventually. I ran a soup kitchen and a shelter. All this time I've been playing, you know, playing music and music has always been and still is a very, very big part of my life. And it actually has helped define me in the healing arts as well. Um, and has contributed greatly to how I've developed the Madiri model, <clears throat> as we call it, the unified model of healing. But um, I eventually kept asking questions and like, you know, what is my purpose in life? And, and what am I, you know, how do I maximize my reason for being? And it kept coming back to, um, I'm supposed to work in the field of natural medicine and, and I'm really good at it. And so I'm a very good musician, but I'm possibly even better at this thing of working with people and getting them well. And so I made a choice and decided that this was going to be my, my life. And so I, uh, I had managed several natural food stores. I owned one with a good friend of mine. And then I started to get a degree in nutrition, do all the studies at the time. We're talking about the 1980s now. At the time, all the studies you could in herbal medicine. And I um, opened up my first clinic called Center for Natural Healing in Connecticut. And I think I had four different locations of that clinic before I embarked on moving to Oregon, uh, which was in the, around 1999, 2000. I just finished writing my first big book called Herbal Medicine, Healing, and Cancer. It's the first, uh, I believe it's the best-selling book on herbs and cancer still to date. And I moved at that time to... Uh, again, looking for my calling, um, and I thought I was supposed to open up a retreat center for patients that were ill to come and stay, you know, for a week or something and help mend them back to wellness and give them a lot more than I could in a clinical setting. And that I, even though I gave a couple of retreats in the early 2000s, cancer retreats at a retreat center that went very well. I started to see a shift in what I was called to. So I started my foundation. I started my own product line because I was dissatisfied with what was available in the world of um, herbal and nutritional medicine. I saw a decline in quality and, and never quite getting what I wanted. So I developed my, my own line called Natura Health Products. And then I, I started my foundation and I felt my calling was more to change the whole medical model. And so since then I've been doing a lot more work to, to, in mainstream medicine, lecturing in universities and hospitals across the country, even outside of the country. I spent a week in um, Israel training at Bellinson Hospital, their whole integrative uh, ward of about a dozen or 15 practitioners. I lectured to the entire hospital. I lectured to the oncology department, to the dietitians. I saw um, seven, seven, nine patients with about 30 practitioners in the room with me. And that was, uh, that was, uh, I think four years ago, uh, around, uh, it was actually uh, during Hanukkah. So, uh, that's how I remember it. And so, and I'm still, right. that's, that's still my calling now. So I want to ask you actually, uh, I want to focus in on plant medicine, if you don't mind for this call. I'd like to have you back maybe to talk about your experience as a monk. I think that would mm -hmm. be interesting, but, sure. um, in regards to plant medicine, I, I asked this question once. If, you know, there's tribes and people scattered all over the world throughout the ages. Do you know if they happen to have a set of plants that were local to them, you know, like across many cultures that were able to heal their, their greatest problems? Or was it that 
you know, this culture, yes, they, they were around the plants and they were able to heal a lot of things, but there were certain things that they couldn't. Or is it, again, coincidentally and mysteriously that wherever people have settled in the past, there tends to be enough plants around them that they are able to use them to heal most of their main issues? I mean, I think that's a really interesting and great question uh, that we can take uh, several different angles. I think we're living in a unique world today in that where humans are at right now is a very different place. But I think if we were to go back and look at cultures and tradition and life on planet Earth a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, uh, that would probably be a very good way to understand health. In other words, that, that the provider to us all did have enough medicine around to wherever cultures lived that was not only, for the most part, um, able to meet most of the illnesses of that culture, but ha have adapted, the plants have adapted to that surrounding to particularly be useful for a lot of the stressors that may, that particular civilization might be having. So, you know, plants are amazing at adaptation. I mean, they're incredibly intelligent. And as they develop these secondary metabolites, not the primary metabolites, what we're learning is that, that those secondary protectors of the various stressors, whether they be weather related, whether they be insects, whether they be fungi, whatever it is that in their environment that has changed their chemistry to help them adapt and, and in many cases thrive, when we ingest those same plants, those compounds, those unique compounds to that plant that has been stressed in that environment happen to be the most medicinal parts of the plant for our well-being. I mean, it's a really beautiful thing when you actually see that. Um, great examples of that are, um, say, the phenolic compounds called stilbins, or um, um, that would be uh, Terracarpus musupium that has terastilbin, uh, or plants like uh, Japanese knotweed, um, Polygolum cuspinatum, which has the resveratrol, which is also present in the grape leaf and other uh, known um, foods in, in, a, in a lesser extent. But if, we, if those plants aren't stressed, they don't really produce those compounds. And so one of my beefs with today, modern day herbal, herbal medicine is that many companies are farming plants plants that are weeds that are grown in very, normally would be in very harsh environments are, are prettied up in this beautiful rich soil and they, they're not stressed at all. So they look really good, but they don't produce those compounds to the level that they would in the wild. Huh, that's interesting. Um, when you take a plant medicine, I mean, you know, it's obvious, but then again, it's not. You're taking, I would guess, dozens or hundreds of ancillary compounds that we have no clue what they're doing, or maybe we do, but you know, when you take a small molecule drug produced by a drug company, you're just trying to isolate one chemical to help you. Mm -hmm. So it just seems like the nature of plant medicine itself is very different. And do you wonder or do you know, like, are all these ancillary compounds necessary to have the real proper effect? Or is the distillation of it into one compound a better way to go? Well, I think, again, speaking very generally, in some plants, we always want to respect and value the synergy of the plant compounds, just like we would in food. However, to make good medicine, we have been able to identify often an active ingredient or a group of active ingredients, and that although we don't want to isolate them, 
or synthesize them, we want to be assured that when we're taking a certain medicine that we have enough of those active compounds to invoke therapeutic value that we're expected. So every plant is a little bit different. Some plants have multitude of active ingredients, say like Hyperdicum, St. John's wort. We can't quite figure out what is the most active, but you have, you have an array of different compounds. The same is true of things like milk thistle or ginkgo biloba. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're a family of compounds and sometimes there's two or three different group compounds. You know, reishi mushroom, you have a, the, what's called the beta-glucans, but yet you have these terpenoid compounds called the ganoduric acids. And so you wanna not take and isolate, you won't wanna say, I just wanna take beta-glucan, but you also don't wanna take a mushroom extract that isn't assuring you a certain level of beta-glucans and a certain level of terpenoids or ganoduric acid. And so, um, and where drugs are very appropriate if we were um, machines and that we were built that way, but we're really designed primarily, not to say that drugs don't have a role in a very unified medical model. They certainly do. In the, in the, the Madiri medicine model, there are five primary toolboxes. One is modern pharmaceutical, but the first and the primaries are going to be botanical medicine, nutritional medicine, dietary medicine, lifestyle medicine, then we carefully fit the pharmaceutical medicine in to that system. We don't, we don't say, here's your drugs, and then we'll see what you can take along with it. Everything is unified for the purpose of maximizing the healing. And the philosophy of traditional medicine, very, very different. You know, we believe that the innate healing capacity is in, in the life force. That life force is carried in the plants, it's carried in animals, and it's carried in us. And that the best kind of medicine is one that supports that life force, builds robustness in that life force, helps the body to auto-regulate, helps the body to auto-organize, and then works at the molecular, cellular, and organ system level. The only thing we know that can do that are plant medicines. There are never, there is no drugs, there'll never be any drugs that accomplish that kind of beauty in, um, in, our, in, the, in the objective. If your objective is to say I'm broken and I need this, well, this drug to fix me, it's a very different philosophy. Uh, than I think traditional medicine has, like traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine, or the great traditions of America, the eclectic medicine, medical tradition, or the physiomedical uh, tradition, which were traditional medical models um, based in herbal medicine practiced in um, America. You mentioned uh, five aspects of the Madiri system, and two of them were nutrition and diet. Maybe it's a stupid question, but how are they different? Uh, they're different in that diet is what you eat as food, nutrition is what you may take as supplemental. And so if somebody is severely zinc deficient, which is very common in the elderly population and particularly people with cancer or with immune compromised conditions, you cannot get enough zinc through their diet to support them. You have to supplement that. And we use like a naturized form of zinc. So whenever you're supplementing the diet with nutritional compounds, that, that's what I would call the nutritional toolbox. The dietary toolbox okay. is how you change what you eat as food. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Makes a lot of sense there. Um, in terms of, again, going back to the plant medicine, uh, before we dive in a little bit more, what, what like blows your mind about plants? You've been studying them for a long time. What, what do you just like are amazed by? Well, I think from a scientific viewpoint, 
their, how multifaceted they are in altering molecular pathways that play a, a, a profound role in healthy aging. And so looking at all of these causes, whether it be sirtuins or IGF-1 signaling, all the ways that we see human health decline and that ultimately leads to disease, whether we're looking at like all the inflammatory pathways, the chemokines, the cytokines, and, and how much of disease is, is a disease of catabolic uh, state and inflammation and oxidative damage and how well-suited plants are to be multifaceted and that one plant can take care of all of these needs within, within our health declining. And unfortunately, unfortunately, they do it in a subtle way and they do it in often a humble way. So I often call pharmaceutical medicine glamorous medicine. You know, you can, you can in, in cancer terms, you can take some drugs that dramatically shrink a tumor. But then you ask, but the ultimate goal of anything a patient does or anyone does for their health, there's only two objectives. One is, does this, is what I'm doing going to lead to a longer life or a healthier and better life? If it doesn't end up doing it, then it, who cares if, you're, if your tumor shrinks, you know, 90%. If the cancer comes back more aggressively in six months and kills you, even though you have this incredible response, that's not good medicine. Whereas if you take an herbal approach or a Madeira approach, say your tumor in six months never shrunk and say, oh my gosh, I still have this, you know, three centimeter tumor, but I'm incredibly healthy. I'm functioning wonderfully and I'm not developing these clonal offshoots that are resistant to all these high tech drugs and I'm not destroying my body. And I'm not wow, saying that, that one is always the, you know, I'm, I'm just giving an example of what, what people are looking for. Some people are always looking for this dramatic, what I say, glamorous medicine. And the best medicine is humble medicine that works slowly, that works in tune with the body. Now that can't always be, you know, when people come, you have to work with what they have going on. And sometimes you have to put out fires and that's, that's, you know, you have to do what you have to do, but the best kind of medicine that leads to that long-term success is medicine that's working in the root system of the body and building it and nourishing it and making it healthier. Yeah, I mean, that's a very different way of looking at things, especially like, you know, if someone has cancer, they're frightened out of their mind, and all they want, I'm sure, is to see, like, for instance, the tumor to shrink, and that would be yeah. a metric of, of success for them. But so you're, you're saying that you've had, uh, you know, clients or patients where they have tumor or tumors, they don't necessarily shrink, but the person obviously feels good and is functioning well, so they seem to be healthy, even though that they're not getting the specific uh, goal that they thought they wanted, the tumor shrink. And everything in between that. Yes, I, ha I have numerous stage four cancer patients that have been with me uh, 20, 25 years that sometimes their tumors are more, more evident and sometimes they go into a state of dormancy and they, they're, they're not active in any way. And, and what people don't realize is what we see now as cancer, as visible cancer, is only one half of the equation. So most cancer, not all, what I call smarter cancer, because cancer, you gotta think of cancer like having an intelligence to it. Is my cancer intelligent or is it unintelligent? And that doesn't matter if it's breast cancer or pancreatic cancer or 
uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, there are biomarkers within the blueprint of that cancer that are aggressive, that have metastatic characteristics, and that ultimately have this what's called stem cell population. So the other side of the coin is you have the, the obvious cancer that's in the, in the body making tumors, but underneath that hidden in the, in, in the body, um, unnoticed are these stem cells. And most drugs, not all drugs, some drugs actually target stem cells, but most of the conventional drugs that people do for cancer don't target stem cells. So if you have this stem cell population, yes, like in ovarian cancer, you can, you can get a complete response. But in three, six, nine months, the cancer is back and now it's platinum resistant and it's more aggressive. And that's because of the characteristics in the stem cells. And so what we've learned is the best thing that tackles stem cells is botanical medicine. I have a whole huge PowerPoint presentation on, on botanical compounds targeting cancer stem cells. But again, they do the quiet work, the work that gets unnoticed. I mean, you know, nature is so beautiful in that way. And, and many of the best plant medicines are the ones that we're always trying to destroy with a with the chemicals that we put on, you know, put on lawns and stuff. I mean, dandelion, pokeweed, uh, red clover, you know, uh, plantain, burdock. These are all weeds that people are trying to kill, like spending, you know, billions of dollars each year of chemicals trying to kill them, and um, they keep coming back. So what? So if, if I'm just picking an example, if someone has tumors and even metastatic disease, and they go on a botanical protocol. They feel better, their health appears to be better in all ways, they feel good again. What is that plant medicine doing then if it's not shrinking the tumors? Like what is it doing? What have you physiologically, what's happening? Why is there health again? Well, let me back up for one second, because I always like to give a quick little overview of the three uh, the trilogy of which I work in or the the three ways. So one, um, Richard, is to focus on the health of the patient. So that's where all of our plant medicines, tonics, adaptogens, organ-specific herbs, anabolic herbs, herbs that build the inward energy, whatever we need to do to strengthen and increase the healing capacity of that patient is only one of three areas that we focus in. The second area is what we call the microenvironment. Cancer or disease in general is always looking to manipulate the microenvironment or hijack it. Cancer cannot make tumors without taking control of the body. And as the cancer develops more and more and gets more intelligent and spreads more in the body, the more it's manipulated that microenvironment. So we have to assess that environment and understand it. Is it the most conducive to the health of the host, which is the person, or is that microenvironment more conducive to disease, or has the disease manipulated that microenvironment and what are the biomarkers we can assess in that microenvironment that are telling us that, that our medicine must target? So we strengthen the host, we alter the microenvironment, that's one, two, and the third step to the program is now targeting the disease itself, which might include pharmaceutical medicine, but we have to identify which of those medicines are best, or it might include the offensive botanical agents that are known to be more specifically um, cytotoxic to cancer cells. So that can be all of the, you know, 70% of chemotherapy is plant, was plant-derived originally or is still plant-derived. You know, you look at the Pacific yew tree as the source of taxol, 
you have the semi-synthetic taxol, which is taxotere, and then you have the nanoparticle liposomal taxol, which is um, <clears throat> uh, uh, abraxane. So, you know, and there are other taxine drugs now approved for prostate cancer, and that all comes from one molecule from one plant called taxol. Taxol is, is, a, is one of 27 taxines, and that doesn't even include all the other plant compounds in the, in the Pacific yew tree. So the Pacific yew tree has a whole family of taxines that are all cancer suppressing, but the drug company had to isolate the most active and the strongest. So one of the things that we do in Madeira medicine is we, if people are going on a taxine, we will give them in their protocol a tax, a, a, a um, taxis uh, extract that provides all of the synergistic compounds that the plant has to go along with the medicine. It's just a little thing, one of the little things that we do in our, in our, in our approach to helping people. So we're not afraid to use strong medicine, but, but the strong medicine should always be the third objective. The first is nourish and, and strengthen the host. The second is change the microenvironment. The third is identify the molecular characteristics of the cancer and target that with the best medicine and the most harmful to the abnormal cells, the least harmful to the healthy cells. So um, quick question, and then another one on top of that. So in your taxine example, if someone's taking taxol, they're just taking one compound, mm -hmm. but instead you give them this extract that has the other taxines. What have you noticed is the effect? How much of an improvement is there? And I mean, the, the, I, the, the effect that we see is that the resistance to the drug is dramatically reduced and often inhibited. And then the cytotoxic actions of the drug secondary are often increased as well. So, but the most important thing that it does is that it, it, it inhibits the, all of the capacity of the cancer cells to build resistant pathways like the P-glycoprotein pump pathway, for example, that enables them to eventually figure out this drug and learn to pump it out and have it no longer be harming them. So it, it dramatically reduces uh, drug, drug resistance. Okay, that makes sense. Um, how do you know, how do you characterize the, the microenvironment? Like, you know, okay. traditional medicine, I guess, would do it with a biopsy at the site of the tumor or? No, 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 the biopsy would bio be, no, the biopsy would be for uh, identifying the tumor itself. The microenvironment is all done through, mostly through blood work, but a little bit through urine analysis. So for example, um, morning urine pH is one thing. So we, we use um, bicarbonate, but potassium bicarbonate to create a more alkaline environment. Now, a lot of people think that's magic and it's great. It, it doesn't do anything other than make the microenvironment, bicarbonate makes the microenvironment less favorable to the acidic um, environment that the tumor is sequestering. And the tumor not only wants this acidic environment, the metabolic metabolism of tumor cells is, is predominantly glycolysis, and glycolysis creates more, the byproduct of that is more lactic and peruvic acid. So both as cancer cells multiply, they create more acidity. The acidity creates like a barrier reef that then protects the tumor from the, from the, from the immune system, 
and then the um, micro, the acidic microenvironment also hinders the effects of cytotoxic drugs, other things people might do, and it also contributes to fatigue and and pain in cancer patients too. So that's one little tiny thing. But other things is to assess inflammatory pathways. Another thing is to look at all of the endocrine pathways. If it's prostate cancer, breast cancer, we're looking at things like estradiol, estrone sulfate, um, uh, pathways of testosterone metabolism like um, estrogens or dihydrotestosterone, insulin, how well insulin and glucose is being utilized by the body. And, there, and then hypercoagulation is a big thing that we do. So seven uh, cancer patients are seven to 10 times higher risk of developing clots. So they tend to have a higher fibrinogen content and often higher D-dimer. So we'll check fibrinogen and D-dimer, and then we'll use herb, blood-moving herbs, oxygenating herbs with enzymes that dissolve and reduce that um, you know, kind of uh, bird's nest effect that, that the tumor creates as well. So it's all this stagnant blood. Cancer is a very stagnant disease. You have stagnant blood, you have stagnant oxygen, and you have um, stagnant lymphatic system. So you've got to move the lymph, you got to move the blood, and you don't boost oxygen by giving cancer patients, you know, oxygen, you make oxygen more efficient in the body. Um, so those are just a few examples of the microenvironment, how you can manipulate them, manipulate it. And herbal medicine is great at all of these, all of those areas. And there are other areas too, as well, outside of that. But when we're looking at inflammation, hypercoagulation, pH, hormone panels, the other area is now the nutritional end because cancer patients have often high copper, low zinc, high ceruloplasm. They have, then you have to look at the two forms of vitamin D in the body. And these are also part of that assessment too. And, um, and all of a sudden, you know, you normalize their zinc, you normalize their D, you lower their fibrinogen, you get the pH to where it needs to be, you balance their endocrine system, you strengthen them, and the trouble with the Madiri system is that it's, it's a synergistic, unified system that's living and changing. And medicine today is all based on isolating everything out so that you can remove all the variables and understand what's actually working. And so it's completely counter to how I think and how I work. Yeah, I mean, the human body is so complex. It's insane. So it's, it's just not possible to effectively... I would say the, the most effective way to treat it would be to account for all these interactions. I guess the traditional science just shies away from that. That's completely different from the way it, it works. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you're, particularly with cancer, do the patients that you work with, are they continuing on their normal you know, Western medicine protocols, you know, radiation, chemo, et cetera, and you're adding what you do as an adjunct, or are some people choosing to not do traditional stuff and only work with uh, the things that you work with? Well, what our preference is, is to identify what people are going to uh, need or not need what aspect of pharmaceutical medicine. It's not black and white like that. So often slower growing tumors and tumors in older people require the least amount, if not zero, pharmaceutical medicine. Faster growing cancers, more aggressive cancers, and cancers in younger people need that, that unified approach. The trouble is that the, the way that pharmaceutical medicine has been approved for cancer is archaic and backwards. So the tools that they have 
could be way more useful for cancer patients if they use them correctly. So using them correctly is identifying what people potentially are gonna be the best responders to the drug, what people are gonna suffer the most amount of adverse effects, and then what people um, are going to require an, an adjustment of dosage of drug. So everyone in the way the, work, the cancer works, drugs are approved based on the site of a cancer predominantly. And it's changing a little bit slowly, but not nearly as quickly as it can. Some drugs, we talked about breast cancer. So in ovarian cancer, a third line drug is um, topotecan, for example. Topotecan is derived from a plant, a Chinese plant called Camptothecta, and that drug targets a specific upregulated pathway in the cancer cell's metabolism called topoisosomerus 1, short for topo 1. We can now test people's tumors to see if they have high topo 1 or low topo 1. And it turns out, common sense is, is verified by science that people with high topo 1 do better on topotecan, get better response than people with low topo 1. Now, if you have breast cancer and your tumor comes back really high in topo 1, you're out of luck. Or if you have breast cancer and you're HER2 negative, but HER1 positive, you're out of luck again because there's no HER1 targeted drugs. There's now second level HER2 new drugs that include HER1. I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but if I really dove into the so politics, true. if I really dove into the politics around drugs, it, it, it borderlines on criminal how people are given drugs with what we know how they should be getting them, to be honest with you. And it's not that drugs are bad and people should avoid chemo or targeted drugs. I happen to really like immunotherapy and what's called the PD-1 and PD-L1 drugs. Um, they, I get tremendous synergistic effects with those, uh, those drugs. You know, for 30 years, they said the immune system has nothing with cancer. And the biggest breakthrough in the last three years has been you know, targeting the immune system by downregulating what's called the program death receptor, which is the one of the main ways that the tumor hides itself from T cells. So T cells are a big way that we destroy tumor cells. And if you have a lot of PD-1 uh, lignans or receptors, they basically are hiding from those T cells. Um, but that requires a robust bio, uh, microbiome for the patients not to be on antibiotics, not to be on proton pump inhibitors, not to be on, on steroids, which most cancer patients are on one or two of all those. And it requires a specific diet and specific botanical nutritional support. Then all of a sudden you see this miraculous effect that's sustained and beautiful that I've seen over and over again with that family of drugs um, as well. Yeah, I can hear from the things that you're saying that you know what you're talking about and you've, you've, uh, you, know, you have knowledge from a lot of areas. So I wanna ask you a little bit about education and experience. What do you remember back as being the breakthroughs in your understanding? What, what did it for you? Why are you good at what you do is what I'm saying essentially. What, well, you know? I'm, I'm fearless for one and I work harder than anybody I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I've been doing it a long time and I'm, I'm so dedicated to, to it. I love, I love helping people and I love seeing people get well. So I, I started, I would say my turning point was um, maybe about 24 years ago, 25 years ago, when I took on my first difficult cancer patient 
that was a young woman in her early 30s with breast cancer. Her name was Sinclair, and my clinic changed her name to St. Clair because she was so beautiful, so angelic, never complained about her disease, and I never saw anyone go through such horrific treatment in my life, you know, double mastectomies, lymph node dissections, tons of chest wall radiation, all this chemotherapy and watched none of it really worked or did anything to really help her, and yet she, she, she took it with such grace and dignity and, you know, I loved her. I mean, I love my patients. You know, I'm, I'm not afraid to tell people I, I give my heart and soul to what I do. And, and uh, when she passed, her mother and father came in like a couple of days later and hand me a ring that she made for me. And she finished it right before she died. She goes, I got to finish this ring for Donnie before, before I go. And so it was pretty much the last thing she did on the face of the planet. And so I put that ring on my finger that day and I, I've never taken that ring off my finger. So it lives on my finger. So I would have to say that was, that was when I said, uh, Richard, I said, no matter how good I do with herbal medicine, if people are taking drugs that are killing them, they're not going to get well. I have to learn everything I can to understand cancer from every perspective, read every book, every journal, be completely non-biased, have an open mind and really try to figure out how to put the pieces together one patient after the other to get them well. Oh, no, that's great. Um, what do you think are the origins of cancer? Like, how does it arise in your estimation? Uh, I, I, it's multifaceted, but if I was to point to a couple of things, I would say the nervous system I would put as number one in primary. So almost all can't, the biggest, I mean, I mentioned the program death receptor inhibitors. That's the biggest known breakthrough in cancer in recent years. The biggest unknown and maybe even bigger breakthrough in cancer is the usage of the associated usage of taking beta blockers in cancer patients. So what we've seen over the years is that cancer patients that take beta blockers have reduced cancer. They have a slowing down of their cancer if they have cancer, and they have significant reduction in reoccurring cancer. And so what we've learned is that cancer is primarily biphasic. And so whatever we know it to be growing, it's almost always has a second way that it grows, which is the sympathetic nervous system. So the heightened stress that we live in and the lack of parasympathetic which should be our dominant state, and particularly the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is so key to good health and to cancer and how all of those molecular pathways that the body then goes and tries to fix and normalize, it does it when we're in parasympathetic tone. So when we're in sympathetic mode, our body's output of energy is going to serve our outward needs, which have nothing to do with how we keep cancer at bay. When we're in parasympathetic mode, our body shifts to an inward need and says, all right, what do I need to do on the inside to keep myself healthy? So it's not just the nervous system itself, it's what the body does when it's in that more resting mode that, that serves our needs. Detoxification, we do not detoxify when we're outputting energy. I don't care what supplements you take. The number one way is to get your nervous system to calm down. And so I do a lot of work with Nervines, which happen to be great cancer suppressors, you can't believe it, and breathing and finding ways to get people um, to be um, metabolically more at ease with their spirits. So 
Madiri medicine is spirit, mind, body, rather than mind, body, spirit. So we focus on that spiritual nervous system energy, which is the everlasting energy anyway, as the first type of energy. And then you have the, the <clears throat> essence as the second, which is the endocrine energy. And then you have the um, <clears throat> vital force, which is the mitochondrial and cellular energy. So those are the three energetic makeups in the human body, but the spiritual is the most important. So I would say that the that, that would be the primary reason. And then everything else we can throw on top of that, you know, the dietary effects. I'm, I'm doing a big talk in glyph, uh, glyphosate and the impact that has on our health, which includes cancer. And I'm not talking about people that are spraying Roundup. I'm talking about us ingesting all the GMOs, foods, and the, the slow deterioration of our health from eating GMOs, and, and, uh, and which include cancer. Um, so we have, we, you know, we have an environment, we have environmental issues, we have dietary issues, and then we're inheriting, you know, because of our parents not living, you know, maybe our parents were smokers and we don't smoke, but they had gene alterations before that they passed on because of their poor lifestyle that we inherit, you know, that, that maybe um, have contributed to, it, you know, a big increase in, um, in many cancers. So is it at the point where, I mean, well, I can't ask you like your cure rate, but I mean, is it at the point where you feel like you're able to positively impact and help most people that come to see you or just about I can all help of them? every single person significantly if they're compliant. So compliance is essential and people are going to understand the complexity. One of the things with Madiri medicine, it's overwhelming to people because there's so many pieces to it. It's like somebody that listens to, you know, radio music, you know, hit songs and now you're sitting them down asking them to listen to a, you know, this great classical piece of music that is, you know, Stravinsky or something, and they're not, or it's some great jazz piece of music. You want them to listen to John Coltrane, who's my big jazz idol. And they're just, they don't have the ears for it. So a lot of people don't have the capacity and they want to be fixed, you know, like a magic bullet still. They just don't want it to be a drug. And that's not my approach at all. So compliance and buying in or understanding in a belief in what we're doing together you know our our motto is together we heal and together means everything's together the herbs i'm together you're together the the oncologist is together we're working in this participatory way and it's through that participation that the healing effect the healing happens and so you have to have that understanding the second piece is that if people are advancedly ill and they come one of the key components is having a caregiver that really can assist them and help them get all the tests that they need, help them comply, help them open up the conversation between the oncologist and myself. So that's the second really important piece. And then if pharmaceutical medicine, what I call out of the box is necessary, it's finding an oncologist for what I call a Madiri friendly oncologist to work with that then I can converse with, that we can put our heads together and come, with, come up with something that might be a little bit um, different than, than, cause they've run out of options basically. And if all those things can happen, it's pretty uh, consistently miraculous what we can do for people. We're about to, in this, this year, publish a 30 patient um, breast cancer retrospective audit of stage three, stage four breast cancer patients of mine. And, uh, 
And again, I, you know, I, I, I focus on getting people healthy. That's always the most important thing. You know, it's like, a, you know, nourishment and getting people healthy. It's not, I'm not really ultimately treating the cancer. I mean, it, it comes into play, but it's not the primary thing to, that, that we do. The primary thing is getting people as healthy as human possible. I, I usually tell people, I said, I want to turn you into a superhuman, like, you know, the healthiest human being on the face of the planet in spite of what you have. And then we'll do the other things as well. Okay. All right. Got it. So um, you're in Oregon. Uh, people can visit you, obviously, in person. Do you do, uh, you know, like telemedicine or phone? Yeah. Like how can mm-hmm. people get help? Yeah, we have, we have, we have several practitioners here. Um, in at our clinic in Ashland, Oregon, we have um, we work um, obviously in person with people. We work through um, video consulting, and we work on the phone. So it, it it is nice to see someone at least once a year. It's not a, it's not necessary, but it is good to have people come at least once a year if they live a distance away. In common conditions you work with, obviously, is cancer, yeah. but any, any other common ones? Well, my book, my, my more recent book, Adaptogens and Medical Herbalism, is uh, the subtitle is Elite Herbs and Natural Compounds for Mastering Stress, Chronic Disease, and Aging. So the last year, I've been lecturing all over the country on aging gracefully, on what does it mean, how, how healthy medicine. So yes, of course, my, my book has a chapter on cardiovascular health on weight management, on, on bone health, on female health, on thyroid health, on cancer. So um, the, that's, you know, if you, if you see my book that just got um, translated into, uh, into German, it's a, it's a pretty massive manuscript. It's over 700 pages, like 5,000 citations. It, it looks daunting, but it, it reads pretty easily. And you will, will see as soon as you pick up the book that it, it is a book that is a that shows that what we do is very applicable to people just trying to age better or people with other conditions and diseases as well. Yeah, when you lecture, you should tell people you're 300 years old. And look at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, last question, or so I know it's, it's time, just about time. Um, you said that people coming to you, it, it can be overwhelming. So, how do they prep themselves to begin? having the ears to hear the symphony essentially so that when well, they do come to you, you yeah. know, they'll comply better. Well, we, a uh, couple of ways we um, we're always refining things. So we have what's called an intro to care document. That's about four or five pages long. So it introduces people to what Madiri medicine is in layman's terms. And then we just produced a film uh, that, that is from a patient's perspective, basically it's a, it's one patient, a stage four breast cancer patient, um, of mine. And, uh, um, and it's called, uh, that's not, that's not my story. Um, and so they can look that up on YouTube and it's about a six minute, uh, video. Um, Carrie Stromsky is the woman's name. That's the primary patient in the video, but it, it really is a down to earth. Look at what it means to be a patient. Okay. And well, that's up good. on our so, website, you know, the Madiri center website, they can do a link to that. Matter of fact, she has a blog that she did on, on the whole filming. And then on, she also came to a benefit event that we had uh, in November in Connecticut that featured uh, Gino Vanelli, um, Roberta Gambarini, and then I played um, some of my original music with the band. And she came to that event and, um, and she, she, 
just did a blog uh, on, on that event. Uh, that's really beautiful and wonderful to look at as well. Very good. All right, so uh, Donnie, thank you for coming. Uh, people can go to madiricenter.org. They mm -hmm. can also go and get uh, your various books and look you up on Google, obviously. And yeah, uh, I, I appreciate I, you coming. Thank you, Rich. I'll just add one, one little thing is that the, you know, the Madiri Center also has an, has an education wing and that we're building with a Dr. Susan Abukhire, a professor from Harvard, a two-year academy that will be predominantly online and webinars, but also some live. That's for active practitioners looking for uh, a, a better way to unify medicine. And then, which it won't, we'll have a, a, somewhat of a focus on oncology, but we'll focus on everything in that, in that uh, academy. And then we have a research wing. We have relationships with Ohio State University, with the Children's Hospital of Orange County, Mercy Hospital, Sinai, Sinai Hospital. So we have all these research opportunities and have spent a lot of time trying to get them off the ground. But again, the IRBs of these institutions are so reluctant to do anything that includes herbal medicine. I cannot tell you how afraid they are. I think they're afraid of seeing success, but they claim that they're afraid of interactions. So even when I say, give me the stage four cancer patients that have failed everything, and I thought that we would get a breast cancer approved protocol through the Ohio State and still, we didn't get approval. Um, so we're having to rechange things. And so we've been working a long time trying to get a, an approved uh, protocol through one of these institutions. And um, we don't have a director of research. You know, we're still fundraising for all of these efforts. Um, but I just wanted to give you a little bit more of an, uh, you know, what, what Madiri, the other pieces to Madiri are. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're busy. Well, again, <laughs> Donnie, thank you yeah. for coming for all that you do. Yeah. And, and if people want to also learn a little bit more besides the Madiri website, I have a great blog. It's my one outreach to patients. It's just my name, Donnie, D-O-N-N-I-E-Y-A-N-C-E.com. DonnieAnce.com. I do blogs on food, on, on glyphosate, for example, on spirituality. So it's my one outreach, what I call to the world. And I did one on potatoes a couple of weeks ago. And so it's, uh, it's, it, there's a wealth of information in, in that. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.